Good morning, Spring Branch. All right, that's what I like to hear. This is the second week of our Explore God conversation. Last week, we asked the question, does life have a purpose? And you walked away excited about giving God glory through your story. This week, we're talking about the question, is there a God? Is there a God? Another big one. So let's pray before we get started. God, thank you so much for this moment. It's no accident that you've brought each and every one of us through the doors this morning, February 17, 2019. God, I pray that you would meet us personally, meet us powerfully. Wherever we are, whatever we bring through these doors this morning, God, may we know that you are real and that you love us. God, speak through me uh, by your Holy Spirit, and uh, Lord, thank you for what you're about to do. And all God's people said, amen, amen. When I met Lindsay... I knew there was a God. When I sunk my teeth into some Chick-fil-A chicken minis for the first time, I knew there was a God. When we had our firstborn son, Rhett, June 27, 2008, I thought to myself, there is a God. What a fearfully and wonderfully made human being. And it's it's a miracle, isn't it? When I saw the sunrise this morning, I knew there was a God. I mean, how many of you have said that at certain points in your life, there's got to be a God, right? Talking to somebody after the service, she laid out a couple, couple uh, quote-unquote coincidences, and uh, she was just amazed, amazed at how God orchestrated everything and put all these things in her life, and, and just, there's no coincidence when you believe that there is a God. Is there a God? Is there a God? It's a question that we've all asked at different points in our lives, And if we're being honest in this place, a room this size, there are many of us who've had some tough times. We've had some difficulties, some challenges in life, and we've asked this question. God, I thought you were good. I thought you were caring. Why are you allowing all this suffering and pain in the world and in my life? In fact, according to the Barna survey, that's the most popular reason to not believe in God. Maybe maybe you've thought, God, I don't need you. I'm pretty self-sufficient. I got it going on. I got some talents, some skills, and abilities. I don't need your help. Uh, Some people think that believing in God is a crutch or a sign of weakness. maybe, maybe, Maybe you don't believe in God because you can't touch him. You can't see him. You can't hear him. You can't smell him. Maybe, maybe you don't believe in God because there's people who, who profess something with their lips and then walk out the door and do something totally opposite. According to Brennan Manning, the, the biggest cause of atheism in this world is a Christian who says one thing and then goes and does something entirely different. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Hypocrisy. Another reason to not believe in God. Man, the Bible, are you kidding me? Moses parted the Red Sea. This guy ended up in the stomach of a whale. I don't know about that. It seems kind of archaic. It seems kind of outlandish. I don't know if I can rely on that as truth. I mean, how many of us have heard those things? Maybe we've even thought those things. Just want to say, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to wonder about things. That's just the nature of life and the nature of being human. I just want to encourage you, don't stay there. Don't stay there. It's okay to be there, but it's not okay to stay there. Part of the reasons we, part of the reasons we come to church is to, 
is to wrestle and grapple with all these questions and, and to come to the conclusion that, yeah, there are some questions that are unanswered, but at the end of the day, I'm going to choose to believe in God because the evidence is just overwhelming. The evidence is so strong that points to his existence and his love for me. See, it's so important, guys, it's so important to answer this question correctly and with confidence because what we believe impacts how we live. We live what we believe. If you don't believe in God, it's like, all right, I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, however I want. But there's something about having a compass, there's something about having a north star that gives you that foundation, that firm footing, that sense of moral, that sense of ethics. And you have that purpose each day. Because when we believe in God, it changes everything. It changes our priorities, it changes how we spend our time, our treasure, our talents. It changes how we view the world, how we view relationships. Believing in God has enormous implications for how we live here on earth and how we prepare for eternity. Wouldn't you agree? A.W. Tozer says the most important thought that we could ever have is our first thought when we hear the name God. What's your first thought when you think of God? That's the most important thought you can have. Why? Because that impacts how you live that day. So today we're just going to jump into this question, is there a God? Is there a God? And many of us would say, yes, there is a God. But there's a difference between knowing about God and really knowing God intimately as a friend. You see, even the demons, scriptures say, believe in God. What do you believe and how does that impact how you live? The apostle Paul, he, he grappled with this question too. And he was on a journey after, after having this experience on the Damascus Road, going from this, this guy named Saul who was breathing out murderous threats and trying to kill Christians left and right. He had this experience, this transformation, and he got down on his knees and God transformed his life. And then he devoted the rest of his life to telling people about God and how real he is and how real his love is. And so here's Paul traveling around the world, Rome, Turkey, and he finds himself in a place called Athens, Athens, Greece. If you know anything about ancient Greece, they worshiped a lot of idols. <laughs> we don't know anything about that, do we, in this world? Idols, replacing God with something else. Paul came upon this place, and his heart was convicted with compassion. His heart was heavy for these people. He walked around and he observed these people without purpose. He observed these people broken, hurting, lost, and confused. These people who were just trying to grab a hold of something to rely on, something to, to depend on. And he finds himself walking through Athens. And he finds himself standing in front of hundreds of people. In verse 22, let's start reading together. He stood up in the midst of Areopagus. It's this this kind of general place of assembly where all these philosophers and Stoics and all these intellects kind of met together and just talked about life and, and uh, you know, pretended like they had all the answers. And so here's Paul, and he stands up and he says, through a bullhorn, standing on a box, turn or burn? No, he doesn't. He says, get saved or microwaved? No, he didn't say that either. Be right or get left? No, he didn't say that either. 
Is that really effective, by the way? As people who yell through bullhorns? No. Um, that was not his approach. <laughs> Let's learn something from his approach. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He starts off with kind of a compliment here. As soon as he said this, I'm sure everybody was like puffing out their chest with pride. Like, yeah, yeah, we are very religious. You've noticed. That's great. And then he goes on to say, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's like licking his chops, you know, he's like, man, you guys walked right into this one. <laughs> as I was walking through the area here, I found this inscription to the unknown God. Even these people in Athens admitted that there was just some other higher, greater being out there that they couldn't figure out, they couldn't name it. And so they made this designated place for this unknown God. And by the way, the word unknown in Greek means agnostic. You've heard of that word, agnostic? It simply means, I don't know. Yeah, there's probably some greater, bigger being out there, but I don't know who that is and if he has any care for what goes on here on earth. So here's Paul, and he walks right through this door and sees an opportunity. And just to pause for a second, I love how he is observant and he sees kind of an everyday familiar object that these people are very familiar with. And I think it's a, it's a lesson for all of us to have eyes to see different situations every day and um, different circumstances where we can, we can actually be tour guides and say, oh yeah, there's God over there. Oh yeah, there's God over there. I mean, even in the most mundane circumstances of life, we can find God, we can find connections to God. And even in an unbelieving world, we can, we can use everyday objects, everyday circumstances to point people to God. That's what Paul does here. He takes something very familiar to these people and he says, oh, wait a second. Let me tell you about that. There's a connection here. And so they were all ears. Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So over the next few minutes, what we're going to see the reasons Paul gives to believe in the one true living God. It's really fascinating. Imagine all these idol worshipers gathered together, and here's this guy, Paul, and he's basically laying out the existence of God. The first reason he gives to believe in God is logic. It just makes sense. Pinch yourself on the arm or pinch your neighbor. You feel that? You exist, okay? Feel your heartbeat. Feel your pulse. You exist, okay? Logic says that something exists, and that something didn't just poof, the snap of the fingers happen or exist, right? There's something or someone behind you, behind something that exists. Right? Nothing cannot create something. Are you with me? Nothing cannot create something. Something has to be behind the something. When I was skiing this past week in snowshoe, uh, I felt my existence <laughs> every inch down the mountain. And it was so much fun. I felt the wind in my face, and uh, I felt my, my old man knee buckling underneath me. Uh, I felt the bumps along the way. 
I felt the snow uh, hitting my cheeks. Uh, it, was, it was a very real, like, I'm full, I, I feel alive right now. You have those moments? You just feel alive. You exist. That's not why you came today to figure out if you exist or not, I know. There's more to it. But logic says that something exists, nothing cannot cause something, so as a result, therefore, there must be an independent creator. There must be something behind something existing. You follow me? Aristotle, you've heard of him? He even admitted that there's an unmoved mover. There's uh, uh, some separate entity behind everything exists that, that exists. There's something behind the scenes that caused something else to be created. Plato says that there's an ultimate maker. There's an ultimate maker. So even these world-renowned famous philosophers admitted that there was some other outside force, outside energy creating something like us or like this world. Astrophysicist Robert Jastrow says this, the seed of everything that has happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. You've heard of the Big Bang? The universe flashed into being, then he says this, we cannot find out what caused that to happen. So even this brilliant, super smart astrophysicist admits that there's an ultimate mover, this unmoved mover behind everything. You know, I love this idea of logic that Paul lays out here because it's not a blind faith, okay? It's not a blind faith. You, may, you maybe have heard that phrase before. There's no such thing as blind faith. Why? Because God gives us plenty of reason to believe, doesn't he? Through creation of the world, of earth, through each of us. There, we have so many reasons to believe in God. Romans 1.20, Paul says, for men are without an excuse because of the things that are visible to the naked eye. See, it's faith and reason together. They're joined at the hip. You can't have one without the other. They're one and the same. Two sides of the same coin. It's faith and reason together that formulate our belief in God. Logic. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. And we've got plenty of evidence to believe that God exists. You know, my dad's a judge. Actually, he just retired. He hung up the gavel and robe a few weeks ago. I think I shared that. Uh, but growing up, he would talk about the evidence, the evidence that the jury needed to make a final verdict. Some cases resulted in some, some, some proof, you know, DNA that uh, brought about a verdict. But most cases, a decision was made based on evidence, based on a, a series of evidence. And that's what we have here, friends. We have some really strong evidence that God exists and that he is real. But you know what? I'm glad God's a mystery, aren't you? I'm glad that he's not able to be grasped. Because if we were able to figure out God, what kind of God would that be, right? I want a God that is so great and so big and so mighty that, that we can't fully grasp who he is. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. There are certain things that God has chosen not to reveal to us because of our immature, finite minds. He remains this mystery, and we, and we believe without seeing, and that's faith. But he has revealed certain things. He's given us just enough because he's kind and loving. He's given us just given us just enough to put our hands around. Logic. Something exists. Nothing cannot cause something. There must be an independent creator behind everything. Moving on, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Paul says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, take a deep breath, and everything he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. To the second reason Paul lays out here to believe in God is science. Science. Lindsay was in here earlier. I think she cringed when she heard that I was going to talk about science because it's definitely not my thing. Definitely not my thing. That's why there's Google. And that's why I'm going to read this next part, because I'm not that smart. Um, think, about, think about the sunrise that maybe some of you saw this morning. Check us out. I mean, Psalm 19, David says, The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. I mean, when you see that, how can you not believe in God? There's, a, there's an intelligent designer behind all of this. Think about the moon. The moon has a perfect distance from Earth. The tides shift and change due to the gravitational pull of the moon. Think about the Earth. If the Earth was any larger or smaller in diameter, it couldn't sustain life. The ozone layer, the atmosphere, is perfectly suited for us to experience life. It is perfectly designed for life. If the dial was turned up or if the dial was turned down, life would not be sustainable. Two-thirds of the earth is filled with water. It's a perfect amount of water to sustain life. The salt content, if it was, if it, if it was even more or a little bit less, life would not, not be sustainable. Water freezes and boils at a constant temperature. Is it, any, of this, any of this just happen by chance? <laughs> no, there's an intelligent designer behind all this. Uh, there's a perfect level of surface tension in water so that plants can use it and can pull the water up out of the soil and through the stem for sustenance. Think about the human body. Think about your body. None of us are mass-produced. God didn't, didn't put us on an assembly line and mass-produce us. He handcrafted us. Each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. We have this DNA code that, 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 knows, uh, that knows our color of our hair and our eyes and our skin. No one person is alike because we have this intelligent designer, this intelligent creator knitting us together in our mother's womb and creating us on purpose for a purpose. You are made in his image. We are programmed in such a specific way. God knew us in our unformed body. Even the most brilliant computer designers can't figure out the, the, the micro computer that is our brain. 
Even the most brilliant neurologists can't, can't keep track of all the connections in our brains. And how intricately designed we are as humans. Our brains even know the temperature of the air and how to regulate body temperature uh, to keep us at 98.6 degrees. Think about that. It's a fixed 98.6 degrees no matter what's going on in your environment. It circulates blood. The brain helps regulate breathing. The hair follicles uh, give us goosebumps in order to protect some of the heat coming close to our bodies. If you begin to exert energy, you begin to sweat to regulate that body temperature. Our brain even knows when we're standing and when we're sitting. So many things going on inside our brains. The connections it's just inside, between our, between our ears are just incredible. Think about your eyes. Any, any photographers here in the room? It's all about that lens, right? People will spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get, that, to get that lens because that makes all the difference in your camera. But even a lens needs an outside light, an outside energy source to get the highest quality photo. It doesn't even compare to the eyes that God has has given us, even now I'm standing here, my, my eyes have adjusted to the light here. I can see some of your faces. Even Charles Darwin, you've heard of him, the natural selection, survival of the fittest guy. He even says this, to, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances, I don't even know what some of these words mean, for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, who knows what that means? Here we go. To think it could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. This is Charles Darwin, pretty smart guy. The universe has a complex design. It's a design that implies a designer, an intelligent designer. Albert Einstein says this, Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. I like that, don't you? Anybody have a watch on their wrist this morning? Yeah, some of you? Imagine disassembling that watch and putting it in this box along with 99 other watches disassembled, okay? Each watch has, on average, 2,000 parts. That includes some gears and some, some sprockets. And imagine 100 disassembled watches in this box. That's 200,000 pieces in this box. Imagine I just kind of shook it up like this a few times. Maybe shake it in, in the right way. Okay, you get the point. What if I opened up that box and every single one of those watches were assembled and told the correct time? Kind of funny, isn't it? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? You see, some people believe that there were a set of particles at one time or another that collided into each other and created this big explosion, this big bang, and over time, and with some chance, it created something complex, you and I and this beautiful earth. Some people actually believe that. See, I think that there was an intelligent designer who reached into that box and with his bare hands he created each and every one of us in this beautiful world that we experience every day. 
I'm going to believe in that. <laughs> I'm going to believe in an intelligent designer behind all of this. Science, logic, the universe has a complex design. Design implies a designer, an intelligent designer. Paul goes on in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. Now he's really bringing it home here. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. Now he's getting personal. So we have this huge, enormous, amazing, mighty, majestic God who created everything from the earth to the sun to the moons and the stars to the ocean to the sand to the mountains to the valleys to our eyes and our brains and our ears and our skin. He created all of us fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet he knows us. He knows every hair in our head. He knows when we sit, when we rise. He knows knows when we come and when we go. We have a personal God who wants to be reached. He wants to be found. He wants to be known. Are you seeking this God? Do you know this God personally? Have you experienced this God? Because the third reason to believe in God is experience. How many of you have experienced the living, true God in your life? Guess what? That could be the most powerful evidence that God exists, is what he has done in your life. A few days ago, I was playing hide-and-go-seek with my kids, and my older two, they get it, they hide, and they're really hard to find, but my daughter, she's so cute, uh, I'll count to 20, and then I'll walk out in the living room, and I'll hear some giggling. <laughs> and uh, before I know it, she says, Dad, Dad, Dad. She's like over behind the chair, and I pretend like I can't hear her, but then she like yells louder. And so I walk over, and I see her behind the chair. I'm like, Lila, Lila, you're supposed to be quiet. You're supposed to be quiet. She's had this big smile on her face. She's like, I wanted you to find me. I wanted you to find me, Daddy. That's the God that we serve. We have a God who doesn't hide from us. He doesn't dodge us. He wants to be found. He's findable. He's explorable. He's searchable. He's knowable. We can experience him. Do you know about him, or do you really know him in a personal relationship, and has he transformed your life? Because your life can be the most powerful evidence that God exists and that he loves us. Are you seeking God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? You know, there have been millions and millions of people who have believed in God and who have actually laid down their lives for God, for what they believed. Either these people, either they're delusional or lunatics or crazy, foolish people, (laughs) or they actually have experienced something real. When God has done something amazing in your life, you can't help but be different and transformed. I was blind, but now I see. I was deaf, but now I hear. I was lost, but now I'm found. And whenever Jesus healed anybody, they weren't theologians. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have all the answers. But when they responded to somebody, all they said was, I don't know what happened. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. 
Maybe you were addicted, but God set you free. Maybe you were lonely, but you found fellowship with God, relationship with him. Maybe you were living without purpose, without hope, but then God gave you an experience of his presence and you found hope. Maybe, maybe your marriage was broken. Maybe some kind of relationship was broken or maybe, uh, maybe you were lost and hurting and confused, but God met you in a powerful way and he, he caused reconciliation to happen. He caused healing to happen. Maybe you had an experience with God. A few years ago, I found myself in the mountains of Colorado and I had this experience when I was in college and it was undeniably God's love for me. I had been walking uh, in addiction. I had been uh, just lost as a young man, trying to find my way. I was seeking man's approval. Um, I was a liar. I was a cheater. But God met me in the mountains of Colorado, and he drove me to my knees through his kindness and his love. And I remember committing my life to serving him. And I drew a line in the sand there. I remember going home, um, and I told my parents, I said, the old is gone and the new has come. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. How many of you have had that experience? The disciples deserted Jesus. They denied Jesus up until the cross. And then Jesus rose from the grave. And one of the most powerful reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the grave is because of the transformation that people saw in the disciples' lives. Where they once deserted Jesus, they were now willing to die for him. This past fall, I had the, uh, the honor of meeting Blake and Sammy for the first time. Lindsay and I walked out into the hallway here after, after church, and we introduced ourselves to this beautiful young couple, and it was the beginning of a great relationship. And uh, Blake was up here in October and had those five amazing minutes and was able to share his story. But um, just to share it real quick, Blake grew up in the church, um, following God, trusting God, and then had, had a negative experience uh, in, uh, in, in that particular church community where he felt condemned and looked down upon for uh, something that he had done. Uh, and so he drifted away from God, rebelled against God, turned his back on God. And one of the ways he rebelled was uh, he entered the military, but it was for the wrong motivation. He started worshiping Satan. He got caught up in addiction. He got caught up in some really, really dark stuff. And he ran away from God, and he ran away from his loving wife, who was on her knees every day, crying out to God, God, Pursue my husband's heart. Grab a hold of his heart. Bring him back. And she had friends that advised her just to step aside from her marriage and give up, but she stood firm and was on her knees every day praying for the heart of her husband. And through a, through a few circumstances, Blake found himself in front of a, a psychologist, and the psychologist gently and clearly laid out the gospel and how much God loved him. And through that experience and a couple other ones, God, God brought Blake to a point of repentance. And Blake felt like a new man. Anybody you, who knows Blake can see his smile from a mile away, just the, the authentic joy that he has for life and for people. 
And this past week, Blake had a chance to, to meet with some of his commanding officers. And he had an opportunity to share his faith with them. He had a chance to, to share the love of Jesus with, with these guys. And it was the hardest moment for him, he said, but it was the most fulfilling, most satisfying moment because he knows that God is real and that God's love for him is real. And he said, Heath, I pray that these men would see the transformation in my life, that their hearts would be stirred to change as well. Repentance means walking in one direction and then having an experience with God, confessing your sins, and through his loving kindness, being compelled to walk in the other direction. What are the ways you need to repent today? What are some idols that you're worshiping? What are the things you're worshiping instead of the one and true living God? I love the rest of the story. Verse 30, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul's bringing it home. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And all of a sudden the lights on the dashboard are going off for all these people. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And there will always be mockers. But others said, we will hear you again about this. They were seekers. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men, some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. But some people believed and they followed him. You know, I think that some of Paul's words were very persuasive, but I think it was his life and the way that he related to those people, the way he served those people and loved those people and treated them with respect, I think that was the most compelling evidence that God was real. How is God going to use you in your life? Are you disproving or proving God with your life? When people see your life, do they see the existence of God, of a loving, caring, forgiving God? What if your life was the most powerful evidence of a God existence that someone will ever see? What if every day you have an opportunity to display the greatness of God in your life? What is that one area of life that you can just give to God and say, God, I want you to not just be the God that I believe in, but I want you to be the God that I serve. I want you to be the God of my life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each human being in this room right now, each son and daughter and child of, of God. Thank you for crafting us by your hands. Thank you for making each of us in a very unique way. God, I thank you for the opportunity we have each and every week to tell people that you are real and that life is so much more meaningful and fulfilling and satisfying, so much more full of purpose, so much more joy and peace. God, when we believe in you, we believe that you're real. And we have eyes to see you this week. 
through other people and through creation, through each situation, may we experience you, God, and may other people believe in you because of your grace through us. God, if there's anybody in this room that needs to repent, may they do that right now. If you're in here right now, say this prayer with me. God, I believe in you. I believe that you're my father. I thank you for forgiving my sins. I want to live my life for you, Jesus. Thank you for your love and your grace. I pray all this in the mighty, awesome, loving name of Jesus. Amen.